Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's June 26th. It's a new episode. And this week, I wanted to do something different. I'm burned out on, on Trump. I'm burned out on politics, truly. And I, I thought about what I was going to talk about this week, but I started getting distracted. I started getting sidetracked as the week went on. And, you know, you can't help it. If you're, if you're conscious and you have any kind of intellectual curiosity, you know, things in the news are going to seep in. You try to avoid it. You try to have some peace. You just can't. You, you're a curious person and you want to know what's going on. And the, the first thing I, I read about was the hijinks of Trump's civil attorney that Alina Habibi, the one who graduated from the number 175 law school in the country about 12 years ago. She's a civil lawyer and she attained such great heights as a lawyer as being the counsel to a parking garage company after a career in fashion. Now, I spoke about her last week. I don't want to really dwell on it, but I, I have to talk about some of it because it's coming into my 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 vision, my my field of vision. I get a morning, two morning emails from a company. It's called Law360, and it sends me all the opinions that have happened the day before, the, the goings-on in the law in various areas, and one of them had to deal with this uh, attempt by Alina Hababa, who, uh, representing Trump, she was in the federal appellate court. That's the court above the red regular trial court in federal court. This is the middle court below the Supreme Court. And she was in federal court trying to overturn the dismissal of a lawsuit that she had filed on behalf of Trump against Hillary Clinton and 30 others, including the Democratic National Committee and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, that's the Florida congresswoman. And in this failed lawsuit that she filed in uh, South Florida, Trump, through uh, Alina Ababa, claimed that Hillary and the DNC and dozens of others victimized Trump in this Democrat-led racketeering scheme, a racketeering complaint, which is usually for mobsters it's used. Naturally, the lawsuit was a complete flop kind of like the Kraken litigation, and was dismissed. Now, I'm not going to talk about Trump for more than another minute, but I want to explain how difficult it is to avoid this shit. But the, the lawsuit that Alibaba had filed and was dismissed, but our young, intrepid lawyer, so I, I got to get her name right, it's Alina Haba, Haba, anyway, she was hit with massive sanctions for the idiocy of bringing this idiotic lawsuit almost a million dollars in costs and legal fees that were spent by 31 defendants. She was put on the hook for that along with her client Trump. And that's got to be a record for any parking garage lawyer is my guessing. Anyway, so in dismissing the lawsuit, the judge noted that the lawsuit was just a 200, I'm quoting a 200 page political manifesto and said, quote, it's not simply that I find the amended complaint inadequate in any respect it is inadequate in nearly every respect, the judge wrote in his decision dismissing it. In explaining the penalty, the sanction against uh, Habibiba, Habiba, Judge Middlebrooks pointed to a series of recent Trump 
cases that she had filed, including a failed action against members of the Pulitzer Prize Board. You know what the Pulitzer Prize is. They filed a lawsuit against the Pulitzer Prize Board to strip awards given to various news organizations for their Trump coverage. She actually sent a demand letter, and I read it. It's almost indecipherable. It's like you need the Rosetta Stone in order to understand what she was writing. That's what they use to understand the hieroglyphics in uh, the pyramids. She sent a demand letter to the Pulitzer Prize uh, board demanding they take the awards back from the writers because Habibi and Trump didn't like what the writers wrote about the 2016 campaign. Now, in explaining the sanction against Ali Baba Hababa, the court also uh, said that Trump's lawyers had been given an opportunity to amend the flawed initial complaint. So she was given a chance. The judge said, look, this is imbecilic, but I'm going to give you a second chance. The judge said instead she came back with a far longer complaint of largely irrelevant allegations that didn't fix anything. Trump, he said, quote, is the mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. In fact, it's obvious that she's following blindly the advice of her idiotic client. Instead, the court said Trump is, quote, using the courts as a stage set for political theater and grievance, which is obviously true. The judge concluded that, quote, most of Trump's claims in this complaint are not only unsupported by any legal authority, but plainly foreclosed by binding precedent as set forth by the Supreme Court in the 11th Circuit. That's where the, the case was filed, that area of the country. So, it's clear that this Alina Hababa doesn't know the law. We kind of knew that already. Law is hard when your main concern is plastic surgery and clothing and lipstick. So I wondered, who on earth? This And again, I got sidetracked because that's not what this podcast is not about this. It's about baseball cards. Who on earth could be stupid enough to take advice from uh, Alana Habibi? I went down the rabbit hole, sadly, and I found that she gave some intense intense legal advice to Ron DeSantis, of all people. Now, Alina considers herself a major Washington power player, a real mover and shaker in D.C. circles, so that even though she may have graduated law school from some almost a remedial law school just a few years ago, when she speaks, the earth moves. Political operatives tremble. D.C. insiders sweat when Alana Habibi delivers her these important edicts with her boobs hanging out and her lipstick just right. But when she's not speaking about criminal law, even though she's never tried a criminal case and doesn't know the law regardless, she gave some very strong advice and a warning. A warning. Again, remember, she's a power player with a capital P to DeSantis when he was considering running for president last year. This is directly from the New York Post. The, the, that's the Trump rag of choice until even they, the Post, when it's the dumbest newspaper that ever existed, they finally wised up and turned on Trump for the same reasons I am against him, because I know he can't win and he just would screw up whatever he touched when he's in office. Quote, this is what she said, quote, he needs to stay in Florida, referring to DeSantis. Just stay where you are. You are doing a great job in Florida, Alina Hababa said in an interview on Right Side Broadcasting at Trump's rally in Ohio addressing the Florida governor's political ambitions beyond the Sunshine State, Habiba advised, don't jump the gun. 
And then she insisted that Trump made DeSantis. Quote, DeSantis is DeSantis because of Trump. I think I like what DeSantis is doing in Florida, but he needs to stay in Florida, Habiba said, doubling down on her advice. I mean, can you imagine that anybody would, that Ron DeSantis would heed this advice? When he was serving our country in the Navy, trying to help Navy SEALs avoid getting into trouble, Alina Hubadubi was picking out the right bag to go with her outfit when she was heading to the mall. Imagine being so utterly insane, so utterly delusional to think Ron DeSantis or anyone with a room temperature IQ would even listen to this fucking clown. So that got my week off to a bad start. I didn't like any of that frustrated me got me angry i don't like stupid people and i especially don't like stupid lawyers and then the hunter biden fiasco him being permitted to plead to two minor tax misdemeanors for failure to file returns when the department of justice knew about this what five years ago four years ago and did nothing when they knew that his laptop was real back in 2019 it was revealed knew that it contained massive tax fraud receiving bribes from foreign governments, knowing that he was acting as an agent for this country and trying to get money and not being registered, knowing that Joe Biden was involved. There was a WhatsApp message, which has now been deemed confirmed to be real, in which Hunter Biden invoked his father's name, invoked his name, and threatened the Chinese businessman unless millions of dollars were sent to the Bidens. It's real. The the Department of Justice knew about this. And yet Hunter Biden wasn't charged with any of this. Any of this. The father, Joe Biden, the big guy, it's all confirmed now. He wasn't even investigated for this, despite millions of dollars traced back to Joe and Hunter Biden's bank accounts containing these bribes. And then a year later, The Department of Justice, the FBI, allowed 50 members of the intelligence community to sign a letter claiming that the laptop was a Russian hoax. And the Republicans haven't even begun impeachment proceedings against Joe Biden. I can't discuss politics anymore. I I just can't. It's just too depressing. And I'll say this. Donald Trump is an idiot. He's been indicted in New York and Florida for stupid things. But nothing he has been charged with is even remotely as bad. Not one-tenth as bad as what Joe Biden and his crackhead pedophile son have done. Not even close. And that's the reason why I'm so hard on Trump. It's, It's not because he's as bad as Joe Biden. It's because he's standing in the way of someone competent who will hold Joe Biden and his freak son accountable. That's it. Enough. I'm sick of it. I'm done. <sighs> Fuck. Now, let's talk about something. I, I've got I've I've to pivot, and this isn't easy because I'm all exercised now. You can hear it. It's real. This is no joke. I'm going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, something that takes me away from the mess that our country has turned into and gets me back to a pure passion, an innocent passion, Baseball cards. I began, I got to calm down. I began collecting at around age four. That's real. This was a different world. And I know the people that are listening today, I've got people from the age, I don't know, 17. And I've got people up to the age, uh, well into their 80s. I know that for a fact. And somewhere in between. 
So the people that are uh, age 40s and older know what I'm talking about here. This was a thing back then. People collected, okay? They collected. They weren't just on their phones when they were kids. They weren't just playing video games. They collected stamps. They collected coins, all right? And they collected baseball cards in America. Baseball cards are Americana. As I said, I began collecting at age four. I still have the original cards I collected in packs back in 1970. I was a huge baseball fan as a kid, and everybody collected cards then. You had to. It was what we did as kids. There was nothing else to do. And to me, it was a solo endeavor. I was a kid that didn't really like to socialize much. I didn't. I didn't like to talk to anyone else. The, the, the challenge was internal in collecting. The attempt to complete sets or just collect as many cards as I could, it was just me and the cards. I'd lay on the floor of my bedroom. I had a tiny bedroom growing up. Tiny. The idea that I had a bathroom connected, of course I didn't have a bathroom connected to it. Nobody did back then. Nobody. I lived in a house with five people. We had uh, one shower, a couple of half baths. That was it. You had to wait in line. Different world than today. I would lay the cards out on the floor and just look at them for hour after hour. And these were players that I collected were not just the ones on TV, but also the statistics on the back of the cards is what was attractive to me. I loved math as a kid. I was really fast in math. And I think that's, I've mentioned this before, that's what's made me, I believe, a very powerful and competent trial lawyer because I'm good at math. I can see down the field. I can see things before they reveal themselves. And on the backs of these cards, they had every possible statistic for each of the players years after year after year that they played. And I have real memories, real memories of figuring out the earned run average. That's what pitchers have. That's how many runs they let up per nine innings. I have a real memory of figuring out the earned run average of Fernando Valenzuela. He was the great Dodgers phenom from Mexico in 19. 19- 81. After each one of his outings, I would figure out what his updated ERA was in my head. The newspapers wouldn't have updated ERAs until like the following Sunday. Once a week, they would have it. Not like today where statistics are available and updated online 24-7. I remember being on the school bus and figuring out Fernando's ERA earned run average in my head. Every Every holiday, every birthday, I received baseball cards in these little wax packs. Every occasion in which I was getting a gift, baseball cards was included. But my family was a little more realistic than me. They wouldn't just give me the baseball cards. I would get pajamas for my birthday. Packs of baseball cards were in the box. I would get socks and underwear for my aunt. I remember my Aunt Frida. She gave me a box with, with socks and underwear in it. The fuck am I going to do with socks and underwear? I was 10 years old. I didn't need that shit. I didn't need any of it. But there were packs of baseball cards underneath. She was smart enough to know what my passion was. I just wanted the baseball cards. And there were times I felt that maybe I shouldn't open up every pack. Let's keep some of them sealed. They're so, they were such works of art themselves. The wax packs, they're actually very valuable today. When you collect them sealed and they're graded and they're entombed in plastic holders, they're beautiful. And they really reflect the, the, the time and the era. The 72 basketball pack was purple and had like these crazy like disco lettering. 
It was a different world, but I would think maybe I don't have to open up every pack. I've got 50 of them sitting in front of me, and I'm ripping through them. <sighs> they were beautiful. They had this, the wax wrapping, as I said, and a flat stick of, of pink gum inside with powdered sugar on top of it, but I had no self-control. No kid did. You, you never knew if that last sealed pack you had contained the Hank Aaron card. So you ripped it open. You didn't want to. You wanted to keep one or two because they were so pretty. But you couldn't. And now there were other cards, I suppose, that people collected, kids collected back then. Remember those wacky packages? I'm not going to go into wacky packages. That's for another show. But they were these stickers that made fun of like household products. And they would have different stupid names. Anyway, it was just stupid. But they were big. But nothing was close to baseball cards. I mean, nobody was clamoring to collect packs of Star Trek figures or the Three Stooges cards. Just baseball cards. And I was anal from the start. I was anal. Wait, The way I was at five is really no different than I am now. And I'm sitting in a room and I'm looking at binder after binder of carefully labeled baseball cards and boxes carefully gold stamped with the series and the year on them. I'm looking at them now, boxes stacked neatly. I know where everything is. Just like I did when I was five. I kept the cards that I had back then broken down by team. I actually still have one of my old cardboard storage boxes from when I was a kid. And inside you open it up and every team had a little divider. And then they added two teams, I think in 77. The Toronto Blue Jays and the Seattle Mariners it just screwed everything up because I didn't have enough extra spaces, so I had to combine. It wasn't easy. And I put something foreboding and threatening on the cover, of course, because I was like, you know, eight or nine. Do not open. And there was a skull and crossbones that I had written on it. I was like eight or nine, and I was already threatening people's lives. No different. And some of the, the joy of card collecting, it, it got diminished when I realized that it was dumb, frustrating. I didn't care about the cost because I didn't have any money then except for my allowance. It was dumb to try to collect an entire set one pack at a time because you'd open up and you'd get doubles and triples and the cards that you needed, you'd never get. So in the back of sporting news and anybody, uh, a person of a certain age in America knows what the sporting news is, it was the Bible came out, I believe, weekly. And it was just had a, a picture on the front of a baseball player, and there were a handful of articles, but it was mainly just a massive amount of statistics, box scores and stats. And if you were a stats nerd like me, it was everything. But in the back, in the back, in the classified pages, there were ads for all sorts of baseball card-related things, and one of them caught my eye. I didn't know this was possible from some person, some thing, some entity named Renata Galasso from Brooklyn, New York. If you sent away $12, you'd get back the entire baseball card set for the year. Every card in numerical order lined up like little soldiers inside this long cardboard box. It took like six to eight weeks and I would run to the mail every day after school until that package arrived. And along with the, the long cardboard box of the entire top set, that's the company, the set for the entire year, I'd get the plastic sheets, nine to a sheet, loose leaf sheets with three hole punches so you could stick them in a binder and they would hold nine cards. And I would start 
separating the set. They were all just in order. They were one player after another, no re- rhyme or reason. It wasn't alphabetic. It wasn't by team, but I would separate them by team and I would put them into the plastic sleeves by team. I'd separate them by team, breaking down the set of a hundred, I think it was 726 cards. It took forever that way, but there was nothing more important than messing with my baseball cards. Eventually, though, I went to college and then law school, and I stopped collecting for the most part during those years, a seven- or eight-year period. But then as an adult, everything changed. There was that line of demarcation. When I was a student and depended on others to give me money, to then when I was an adult and a functioning lawyer with a job, and I had my own money. I didn't have to ask my parents for money for cards or for anything. I didn't have a lot of money. I was making five, six hundred a week at the beginning. But I finally had my own money and it was euphoric. It was freedom. I could do what I wanted with my money no matter how stupid it was. And all I wanted, of course, was to blow it on baseball cards if I could. And I remember I waited a few years until I had some real money and it wasn't a lot. And I remember, I'll never forget it. Looking on eBay, I was looking at these vintage cards, these T206 cigarette cards, and they were all entombed in these plastic holders with a paper flip at the top. There was two companies that graded cards. It was PSA and SGC, and they had a number, and they would grade it, and that's how they sold cards modernly, you know, at least vintage cards. That's how they sold them because – How could you determine how valuable they were? Well, you had to grade them based on the condition, the corners being sharp or not sharp, or there were wrinkles, how the image looked. And I remember the first card that I bought as an adult, the first serious card was Napoleon Lajouet, a T206 cigarette baseball card. He was in the pose of throwing because he had a few poses. His card was from 1909. And as I said, it was on eBay and I was sweating sweating as the time came down and I clicked on a bid button. I put in what I thought was a pretty high bid. I had no idea what these things were worth. I didn't care. I just had to get it. I had to feel it. I had to touch it. I had to sniff it. And a few seconds later, I find out that I won the card. I paid $536 for that card. And it was a huge amount of money for me at the time. It was huge, but no one was stopping me. No one. No one was telling me, hey, you idiot, what are you doing? And I finally got it in my hands, and there was just nothing compared to the substance and the the heft of it, the heft. It was just this incredible feeling just to hold, to look at. I still have that card. I bought that in, I don't know, the early 2000s maybe. And what it did, though, is it brought me back to the euphoric feelings I had as a kid when I had baseball cards in my hand. It brought back that joy. I was a kid again. All the ugliness of my adulthood, of my job at the time, it all fell away when I was back with my baseball cards. And it's very rare that you can find something in your life. This is important, what I'm going to say. So listen, it's very rare that you can find something in your adult life, a material object perhaps, that thrills you the way you were as a kid when everything was new and everything was exciting. Baseball cards does that for me and did it for me then. Now, I'm going to compare this. This is a a true story. The first vehicle that I ever owned, besides a bicycle, was a moped. 
a red, it was a red moped. The, the gas tank was red. That was the only way you could tell the, the color. It was just a moped, a Pook moped, P-U-C-H, bright red gas tank, cost $826. This is 1980, I guess. I was over the moon. I waxed that gas tank every day. Waxed it. Waxed it. I wanted it to be shiny. I loved that thing. It was freedom, man. It was freedom. Got, got me away from my house. I could even go to the malls in Jersey on that thing. It went like 30 miles an hour. The first car I owned was, I guess, two years later, 1982. It was a Toyota Celica. It cost $10,300. It was almost as good as getting the moped, the feelings of euphoria. I remember going into that car at night, just turning on the radio in the garage and just zoning out, putting the seat back. I just loved the smell of it. I loved that car. I found pictures of it recently when I was delivering pizzas uh, my senior year of college, and I used that car. I guess it was now, that was five years later, I suppose, four years later, I still had the car. But the joy of those two vehicles, it's never been topped for me with any car I have had. And I have right now, look, I'm going to be transparent. I've got a turbo Porsche on order right now that's going to be coming to me in September. It's got a special paint color on it, a special paint job that I had to get that the cost of just the paint job, just the cost of the paint job is more than what my moped and my first car, my Celica, combined cost new. Just the paint job. The joy that this turbo Porsche will cause when I get it, eh, maybe 5% as much as the moped and Celica. Maybe 5%. That's how life works as you get older. You want to recapture the joy of your youth whenever you can, and it's not easy. Even when your youth wasn't even so happy, like mine wasn't. But as I, as I bought more cards, let me get back to me being an adult. As I bought more cards and my collection grew, I began interacting with other collectors in online forums and even at baseball card shows. I mean, I was an adult now. I could focus on my baseball cards and not be told what to do. And what I learned is that baseball card collecting as an adult, it's a real metaphor for life. A real metaphor. You can learn so much. I used to think that you could learn everything about life in Bugs Bunny cartoons and the Godfather movies. Pretty much. But baseball cards is the other thing. How people handle baseball cards as adults, as adults, can teach you everything you need to know about life. The poor people who collect cheap cards, they're jealous of the rich people who collect valuable cards. The poor people with shitty collections, they all think that the rich people with great collections are idiots who don't know what they're doing. Now, I often want to say to the collectors with, without a lot of money who look down on the wealthy collectors, how do you think the rich collectors got that way? By being dumb? Or perhaps they're smart and they were able to earn money. Maybe it's you that's dumb. It's possible. The poor people don't really want to collect what they're collecting, but they have to convince themselves or at least lie publicly that they collect the cards that they collect regardless of how much other cards cost because they just, this is what they want to collect, which is, of course, a lie. 
The rich people who collect expensive cards have to pretend to get all excited when they see a poor person's new card acquisition because they don't want to be deemed as arrogant and pompous. At the same time, the rich people oftentimes will just spend exorbitant amounts of money on cards. They don't know shit about what they're collecting, but they know a price tag. That's what they understand. So you can understand why people think that they can be a little dopey or a little less passionate. It's a lot harder to hunt a card down, find it, and get it, having nothing to do with the value, just paying for it. How easy is that? But when you're wealthy and somebody shows you, some poor kid shows you a a weak card, you kind of just suck it up and smile weakly. You know, it might be a 1958 Don uh, Mossy card with his gigantic jug ears hanging out. And you look at it, and it's got a crease down the middle. You're like, oh, that's, that's, that's nice. But the jealousy and nastiness is pretty palpable. I, I came onto this very popular vintage baseball card forum probably 17, 18 years ago when I was attacked almost from the start because I, I put my real name in. You had to. And usually it was the bottom-feeding lawyers who attacked me, which was, was frustrating but funny in a way. Not because I was pissed about getting attacked. I mean, I get attacked every day. But what it bothered me is, is how much it sucked that people like this could ever have a chance to even interact with me and rip me. In the real world, I'd never have people like this near me. But online, it's the great equalizer. If you dare to, to, to stick, stick your toe into the online world, you know, you're fair game. And I, I would have one bum lawyer after another giving me shit. I'd have lawyers criticizing me for who I represented. Lawyers who know better attacking me for any reason at all because they were jealous i'm sorry i work seven days a week i work on vacation try that i get calls at one o'clock in the morning from clients live through that one lawyer who attacked me this was funny was this fat oaf from california he would brag online we had this forum and he would brag about going to card shows and rummaging through boxes filled with $1 cards. Every card was a buck, which means every card was shit. He'd spend hours at baseball card shows rummaging through these boxes with shit inside. He's hunched over, hoping to find the treasure, which to him was like a $10 card that was mistakenly put into a $1 box. And he would complain about wealthy collectors. He acted as if all they cared about was money and the chance to flip their cards for a profit. When in fact, his collection just sucked and he couldn't afford anything better than the shit that he was looking through. So I thought to myself, you know what? Look at how hard he works to find these dollar cards. He's so proud of it. It's like such a, a badge of honor for him. I wonder if he works this hard as a lawyer. I'm guessing he doesn't. So look. You know, I can be petty, Uh, really. I checked his uh, website once, and this was like, I don't know, 15 years ago. The website was from like 1987, when the most advanced video games back then were like Atari Pong. There were like graphics. It was pathetic. It was like handwritten. It was like one page of just nothingness. He had no employees, not even a secretary. And he's like 60 years old now. And he bragged about litigation on his website that got his clients. He's a litigator, a civil litigator that got his clients less money in his entire career put together than I've gotten in one case. And I'm a criminal lawyer. I don't even do personal injury or litigation. They can get you a cash award. And I've still made more in one case. And I checked his website today before I, before I did this podcast. The, the, the website isn't even functioning anymore. And that's really the moral of life in baseball cards. You want better cards, work harder and shut your mouth. 
There's no honor in being lazy. There is honor in hard work, even if you don't make a lot of money. Believe me, there is. The hard work, the process, there is honor in it. Just because you don't make money, it doesn't mean that you're dumb. It means that perhaps you picked a career that the work itself was more important than the financial rewards. There's a ton of people like that. To those, I have massive amount of respect for. Okay, that's the moral of the story. There is no honor in being lazy and bitter. The other moral of the story is to eat a salad uh, on occasion. Anyway, another memory I have, I, I remember when I bought this. This is These are true stories I'm telling you here. You're getting real poop here. I remember when I bought this rare Ty Cobb postcard. And I have my notes from every purchase, okay? Every purchase, because I said I'm anal and I meant it. I purchased this card in August of 2008. It was a Deech, that's the name of the company, Detroit Tigers set, and there were two Ty Cobbs in it, and this was the fielding version, the rare version. Now, I was not a novice card collector back then at all, but I was perceived to be rich and therefore dumb, which of course I'm not. The Ty Cobb postcard was from 1909, and it cost $3,383. At that time, it was a record price, not just for that card, but I believe for any Ty Cobb postcard. And I was lambasted online by this one idiot collector who lived in a mobile home in Virginia. Lived in a, a, a mobile home. I think it was a double wide. And in this online forum where there's herd poisoning, the, the poors uh, oftentimes can finally gain some power in numbers because there's so many of them. And this idiot, his name was, uh, oh, fuck was his name? <sighs> He was a cockfighter. I, I don't, I'm, I'm saying this seriously. This is true. Scott Elkins, that was his name. He was a cockfighter. That was his job. He trained roosters to kill each other with razors tied to their feet. And he defended it on this vintage baseball cardboard. He thought this was normal. This is the kind of hillbilly level shit that I was dealing with. That I have to be stuck dealing with people like this. It's my own fault, of course. And I remember what he said. Lickman's an idiot. He threw away his money, doesn't know what he's doing. He's an idiot. Most ever paid, blah, blah, blah. Like, I give a damn about making a $500 error on a baseball card. I knew it was cheap, and I knew it would gain in value. I'm not stupid. Anyway, this is the, this is the punchline of this story. Less than two years later, in November of 2010, all right, actually, it was 27 months later. He was arrested for illegal gun possession after threatening his family with guns. I looked it up today. I found it online on my uh, legal website, Pacer, where you can find it was a federal case. While he was in jail, naturally he had a public defender because he had no money. He was ordered to have a psychological evaluation. Naturally, the psych report, and I found that too concluded that he not only hated Jews, he was convinced that Jews controlled our government and that the prosecutor and the judge were Jews out to get him, but he was described as clinically delusional. What a shock, what a shock. He believed the Freemasons, that they were in helicopters chasing him and shooting at him. Okay, he was deemed sane enough to go to, to, go to trial, though. He ended up receiving a 27-month sentence and naturally was arrested for DUI and thrown back into prison for 30 days. This is what passed for back then an esteemed baseball card collector. Now, uh, the, the PS, the, the Ty Cobb postcard that I bought 
15 years ago for $3,383 is worth about $75,000 today. What also turned people off on me and the hobby is that early on, look, I, I can tend to be, I tend to be blunt. I tend to say what's on my mind, all right? That's what it is, okay? Is I noticed that the, the biggest auction house that we would buy baseball cards from besides eBay was Mastro Auctions. And I could tell from the way the bidding was going that there was fraud going on. Shill bidding is what, what it is, that the owners of the auction, every time what happens is that you'd bid on a, a lot and perhaps you put a ceiling bid. The card is at $5 and you say, well, I want the card. I'm just going to leave a maximum number of 50. That's what I think it's worth. And the card would be at five and then it would bump to six based on your $50 ceiling because you don't get the $50 number isn't, that's just the ceiling. That means people can bid up to 50. Once it goes above your ceiling, then you're no longer in the lead. And what the owners of Mastro were doing, besides other fraud, as we learned later, is they would look at the ceiling bids of people and they would just continue to bid, 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 and then stop right below your max number. And you'd end up winning it perhaps and paying the difference between what the card should have gone for and what you ended up paying for it because they artificially inflated the price. Now, I noticed this pattern happening a bunch of times, and <laughs> typical of me, I called it out publicly on this very well-traveled vintage baseball cardboard, and everyone attacked me. You know, and to me, and I'm thinking, how could you not see what was very obvious to somebody who deals with fraud every day? It was obvious to me that the people that were giving me shit were either conspiring with the auction house uh, to make money illegally, or they were just consigners to this auction house. And they didn't know, but they were thrilled that the auction house was getting such incredibly stratospheric prices for their cards. But one person contacted me and told me that he agreed with me. One guy, an FBI agent who was investigating Mastro Auctions and their principals. One honest man. <laughs> and I, to me, you know, when you get a message from an FBI agent, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck go up because you feel hate. That's, that's my job is I'm normally, that's my natural enemy, but this guy was different. And we talked about it. We became fast friends. And the next thing I know, a few years later, I'm representing a number of Mastro auction house co-conspirators in the grand jury against Mastro principals. This occurred in Chicago and they were all indicted and the top few guys went to jail and I was responsible for it partly because I helped. Certainly, I wasn't the main thrust of it. It was the FBI agent who busted his hump to do this. For good measure, I also sued the Mastro principals for a client that they robbed, and they folded pretty quickly. I did it a couple of times, and the humiliation to me was complete for Mastro. Jail, losing civil cases that were in the media, again, the moral of the story. Don't steal from an obsessed, angry lawyer. Bad things follow. Now, back to the card shows. The main one is known as the National. That's the shorthand, the lingo. It's once a year at the end of July. This year, it's in Chicago. And I love it because it's just baseball cards for a few days, nothing more. Table after table after table. It's like three football fields of baseball cards on tables. It's just complete sensory overload. And I'm in total joy when I'm there. Because that's all I'm doing for a couple of days, two, three days. It's just me and the baseball cards. 
the phone service doesn't work well inside the facility. So if you want to call me, you're not going to get me. Actually, it works well enough where you get me. God knows enough clients have found me in there and ruined my day. But I'm in total joy, as I said, even though you know, I occasionally have to work on work stuff. This is my life. I don't have pure freedom. I don't have it. But I'll take what I can get when I can get it. With great power comes great responsibility. I think that was the godfather. Whatever. I don't know why that popped into my head. Anyway, the show is inside this giant convention hall, and it's like a half a mile from the airport. O'Hare. And the hotel I stay in, it's connected to the convention center. So you never even have to go outside. You go from your room to the hallway. You walk around a bunch of twisty hallways, twisty, 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 twisty. Eventually, you end up inside this oasis of baseball cards. You never have to go outside the entire time you're even in Chicago. And it can last up to five days. And that's perfect because most of the people at the baseball card show, they don't ever really get to see the sun or breathe fresh air or see grass. So it's perfect for them. Now, the show is like 97% men and perhaps, I don't know, 3% very disturbed women. The men are nearly all eunuchs. Okay, there is no sex going on in these hotels. Normally, you go, you see a hotel by the airport, people are having sex. Well, no. Because they are there for baseball cards. If 30 hookers went to the hotel bar, they'd be ignored at the baseball card hotel. Why spend $200 for sex when you can use that money for more baseball cards? Now, the guys are nearly all grossly overweight. And what's the one thing, because they don't exercise, all they care about is baseball cards. What's the one thing you shouldn't wear when you're really overweight? I'll tell you. A baseball uniform, shirt, jersey made of polyester in two sizes too small. Now, listen, guys, wearing that Minnesota Twins Kirby Puckett jersey in size 42 when you weigh 290, you haven't been a size 42 since sixth grade. You got breasts. Maybe a shirt that like breathes a little bit, that breathes, a fabric that breathes. We don't need to see every roll, every fold. But I guess overweight people wearing baseball jerseys, it makes them feel athletic. Like they're working out. They're wearing a baseball jersey. Therefore, they're, they're, they're in sports. That's kind of like working out, even though they're eating nine hot dogs a day. Now, the food inside the National is strictly pizza and hot dogs and mustard. You've got to have mustard on everything. You're not really enjoying looking at table after table after table of baseball cards unless you have mustard on the front of your shirt. Everyone has a backpack on. You need to have your essentials in there. You have to have your cash to buy cards, your little iPad where it's, you can go online and check the value of the card you're looking at. Because you, you, you also have to, and again, you have to have the cash because the dealers don't trust your check because look at the people in there. I wouldn't take a check from any of these people. Look at them. Who would trust them with anything? I wouldn't trust them. I wouldn't trust them to watch my bike that's locked up against the pole. They also have a bottle of water in there, and you're thinking, well, maybe they want to be hydrated. No, that's not why. It's not for health reasons. It's in case a hot dog gets lodged in their throat. They need to wash it down. Now, as you can guess, the smell is really bad inside this place. There's no windows. It's just this gigantic room populated with thousands of smelly people and hot dogs walking around. But you get lost in there. You get lost. You are anonymous. When I first began going to nationals, this is 15 years ago, 16 years ago, no one recognized me and I was invisible. 
I can't even begin to explain to you how amazing that was. I could just sidle up to people and listen to their conversations. It was amazing. Then as time went on and people got to know me better, when I helped uh, put Mastro, the, the crooked auctioneer, and his partners into jail, I became less anonymous. I became a lightning rod. When I began representing other people accused of crimes or witnesses to crimes in the hobby, I became even less anonymous. It made walking around amongst the baseball cards in total anonymity impossible. And that sucked a little. I'm not going to lie to you. That sucked. Now, haggling with baseball card dealers at one of these uh, shows is one of the worst experiences you can imagine. The prices are insane because the dealers hope that you're uneducated and you'll just pay the inflated price on the cards because you're dumb. They have to give it a shot. They know that people are going to try to haggle, so they put a ridiculous price at first on there. And it can be annoying because it's like you're dealing with people at a carnival, you know, freaks that go from show to show every week with the same cards, with the same inflated price stickers on their cards, and they, they, cards never sell. But you have to try if you want the card. And my rule of thumb is this. When I see a card I like, I back off, I step back a few steps, take a deep breath, I figure out the correct price, and I'm not a cheapie. I pay top price. Now, I, I, I look for a price that's not just fair, but higher. I appreciate that the dealers have to pay money to get their stuff to the show. They got to pay for hotel rooms. They got to pay for admission prices to set up tables. There's fees, all that. And those costs get passed on to the buyers because these people need to earn a living. So I devise a gener generous price. I reach into my bag and I take out the amount of cash equal to that offer. I then approach the table and I have my cash in hand. I'm showing it. It's like when you're going in Seinfeld and you're going to order soup with the soup Nazi. You have to show what you have up front. I make the offer. But I show the cash. Like when you show a dog a treat, when you want them to come inside, they actually have to see the cash. It's very difficult for them to say no when they see the cash. You can see them starting to salivate. You can actually see them floating in air, <laughs> sniffing towards the money. Like remember when Bugs Bunny would smell carrots and he'd float in the air towards the scent of the carrots? That's the dealers at baseball card shows. It's very much the feeling of a carny atmosphere. When they see the cash, it is very hard, almost impossible for them to say no. So you take the cash and you flash it. When you get done with each day at the National, because your feet are just killing you, you go back to your hotel room and you, you look at your booty for the day. You lay it out on the, on the cheap bedspread that hasn't been washed in six years. You have to buy something when you're there. I mean, you have to. Even if you don't want to buy anything, you have to buy something because you're there. Sometimes I buy baseball ashtrays, I remember, one year. I bought a bunch of ashtrays from like the 50s. Those heavy ceramic cigarette ashtrays that weighed like six pounds each and you could crack somebody over the head and murder them with it. They don't have those kind of ashtrays today. Back then they did, so I have a bunch of those. One year I was at the National, I couldn't find any cards, so I'm buying a bunch of friggin' ashtrays. Brooklyn Dodgers, Houston Colt 45s, Seattle Pilots from 1969, heavy, ceramic. Everybody had them in their house when you were a kid. Now they're like, they're like antiques. They don't even exist. No one even knows what the hell I'm talking about unless you're over the age of 40. But I'll show pictures. I may take pictures of them. 
Yeah, I may take pictures of them. I'll show them to you someday. I got to figure out how to put this this uh, this podcast uh, and video. That's what I got to do. You need to see see what I'm feeling when I'm saying this stuff. You lay the stuff on the bed, then you go to have some dinner with a few friends that you have. I don't have a lot of friends in the hobby. I try to stay away from people. I've got my friend Rob from Ohio. I usually eat with him. He's as antisocial as I am. He hates people like I do. He's a perfect friend for me. Perfect. And uh, you then go eat steak at one of the nine steak restaurants within walking distance. Remember, you're at a convention hall next to an airport. So as you can imagine, every restaurant is a steak restaurant because they're catering to the, uh, the business traveler. And then you go to sleep early because the next day it's all baseball cards all over again. You eat breakfast quick in the morning with your one friend. And uh, then you just hunt around and you're looking at baseball cards. And I'm in heaven when I'm there. It's the kind of thing I would have killed to do as a kid. And getting to do it now brings me back as close as I can to that innocent age. Now, I, I, I have to tell this story. I promised you last week I was going to give you a treat. This is a real treat. My friends, I'm going to reveal to you how a real baseball card transaction goes by reading verbatim a negotiation and transaction I had with someone just two weeks ago. I think you'll find it instructive. When other hobbyists or dealers, now this is the rule of thumb. When other hobbyists or dealers want to sell you their cards, they insist upon the highest prices ever recorded for the card. They must have the highest price. It has to set a record. Your cards, they're all overpriced or there's some flaw and they need to go cheap. They can find out what you paid for the card online. There's websites that, that show what you paid for and they get mad if you ask for a price that's too far above what you paid for it like two years ago. It's like, why would I do that? I buy a card and then two years sell it to you for $50 more. It doesn't make any sense. They, on the other hand, they'll buy a card in an online auction on a Saturday night for $4,800. By Wednesday, they're offering it publicly for $6,500. This happens all the time. I just saw it last week. All the time. People you know, think that you're dumb. Now, recently, I listed a rare Jackie Robinson baseball card. It actually was a postcard for $5,300. I listed the card. I have a couple of them. I mean, I wasn't looking to sell my best one, but it was a good one. The reason I listed it for sale was because one in a slightly lesser grade, mine is a 4.5. Now, try to follow me here. One that was in a slightly less grade of four sold for a really strong price on our vintage baseball cardboard. It sold for $4,600. So I figured, hey, if a four sold for $4,600, you know, mine was graded a little higher. So I figured I'd try $5,300. I didn't think it was insane. Very quickly, I receive a private message from a collector who's an investor. Just so you understand, in his name, his handle on this uh, forum, it had the word invest and invest. He's an invest investor, very important investor. Hello, I just missed out on a very nice four for 4,600. That's the card that I just sold a few days earlier. I'm interested in this one. Could you do any better? This one, meaning mine, is very comparable to the four. 
That's what he says. So what he's saying from the start is he's trying to buy the card for me, and he's trying to soften me up by claiming that my 4.5 is really no better than the four that just sold, just because the grading company that's professional and does this, you know, this is their their business, just because they decided the card was worth a 4.5 and the card that sold was only a four. No, they're the same, and he wants me to lower the price. And I, I found that obnoxious. Just buy the friggin' card. Make me an offer that won't insult me. Nope, nope, nope. He's got to soften me up, convince me first that my card isn't worth what the grade suggests it is. But I, I control myself. I respond. I do it for 5100 if that helps. That's a $200 discount. I thought that was not unfair. I bit my tongue, as I said. I, I lowered the price $200. I thought that was nice of me. No back and forth. I'm giving you a lower price. I'm not going to address any of the shit that you said. I just lowered it without him, you know, with him just simply asking, and that was it. His reply, could help a little. I always pay a fair price based on overall eye appeal. What he means by fair price is a cheap price. Based on overall eye appeal and grade. While eye appeal matters to me, it's important that I feel a card is worthy of its technical grade. I see what looks like a tiny white area over Jackie's right shoulder. Is that a paper loss? It looks like some sort of tiny flaw. Now I get pissed because it's like, dude, just, just, just give me a friggin' offer. This is what I'm reading. Blah, 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 blah. Give me money. Give me money. That's what it says to me. But I'm pissed. He's trying to get more off. Could help a little. Really? How about go fuck yourself? How about that? Does that, does that help at all? Does that help at all? Am I so desperate to sell the card that I'm going to listen to you denigrate the card some more? I'll be so persuaded by your massive intellect that I'll just give up and give you the card for the $4,600 you wished you had paid for the last one you saw, but were too cheap then too, and you missed it. So he claims there was some flaw over Jackie's right shoulder. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to look at the card. I'm going to go down to the vault and I'm going to look at the card. I've got this card in a safe. I looked at it. I, I saw the spot that he was referring to. I couldn't tell. It's, you know, it's entombed in plastic, remember, these cards. So it's not like I can touch it. I looked at it. It's It was nearly invisible to the grading company. They still gave it a 4.5. So, you know, they didn't have to subtract any points. So I responded again, biting my tongue, which is a mistake because once these scummy vultures, they smell blood, they can't stop. And this is what I wrote. Hard to tell as it's in the slab. I don't see anything on the surface, so it may be a printing flaw. Meaning, I don't think it's a paper loss. It may just be a flaw in the printing process. And look, I'm being fair. I'm, being, I'm still being nice. I'm being the bigger person. I'm trying not to let what I consider to be a pretty volatile temper get the better of me. I got a bad temper, okay? I do. He responded, there is one graded on eBay, a four. Now, mine's a 4.5, and the one that he just passed on was also a four. It's been up a while. I can get that one for $4,000. I like yours slightly better, mainly because of centering. The issue above his shoulder bothers me some. What's your rock bottom price? So it's like, I just gave you $200 off. Why is everything a negotiation? It just doesn't stop. And now he wants rock bottom. Before, he just wanted a little something off. He was like taking me piece by piece down. He didn't ask me at the beginning what the rock bottom price was because he doesn't want, he wants to slowly nudge me down. There's no counter offer. I'm negotiating against myself. This is pure idiocy. 
And he's telling me that there's a card. He's threatening me. He's telling me there's a card on eBay that's graded a four, the same grade as the one that he was too, too cheap to buy at $4,600 for. And he's telling me he can get that one for 4000 So my price should be, again, he's trying to get the $4,600 figure. But he's not sure that he wants the card on eBay. He'd rather have mine. But he's clearly implying to me that if I don't give him the price he wants, he'll simply pay 4000 for this alternative on eBay that he can get anytime he wants because it's just been sitting there for a while, as he said. He thinks he's putting massive psychological pressure on me. He thinks. I respond, my rock bottom price, 5100 which happens to be the original markdown that I had offered him. He replies, this is, this is really, this is the, the kick in the nuts. This is really the one. I will do 5100 So I'm thinking, okay, he, he has a card. But via PayPal goods and services, I like to have records of my transactions via invoices. That's the best I can do. Let me know. Let me explain. When you sell a card on a board where everybody either knows each other personally or knows of each other, they're bona fides, knows their reputations, it's presumed that you either pay by check or by PayPal, friends and family is the, is the version of PayPal. And that means that PayPal doesn't get a piece of the pie. They don't get a 3% fee on top of it. Because look, when you're trading baseball cards, you're selling them, you want to get as much as you can out of it. You don't want to have to pay another third party uh, just for, uh, for, for selling it. Of course, that's wrong. PayPal deserves their money, and I'm a stockholder. So what I'm doing is awful. But this is how it is in the hobby. And I mentioned when I listed the card that it would be PayPal friends and family payment. So I would net exactly what the sales price was. When I lowered it to 5100 you know, I presumed that he, it would be a net of 5100 If I have to pay the fee, the 3% fee that he's asking for me, and he's not even getting the money, it's going to PayPal. Now my 5100 is now reduced to like 4950 and this is minor dollars. It means nothing to me, but it's the principle. You don't want to get ripped off and abused by some moron. So he gives me this ridiculous excuse of, I like to have records of my transactions via invoices. Can I send you an invoice for 5100 or just send me a check for 5100 Wouldn't the cancel check be an invoice? That could be the thing that you like so much, the invoice. Apparently not. Every dollar has to be contested instead. Now, what do you think I did next? Anyone who knows me well surely can guess what I did next. This, is, this just explains the deviousness, the immaturity, the pettiness of a millionaire baseball card dealer like me. Did two things. First thing I did is I checked the price of the similar card on eBay that he claimed that it was just sitting there forever and he could get for 4000 I see that it's listed at $4,750, but it has a make an offer option, which means you can haggle with the seller and get whatever the seller accepts. Okay. So this guy said he could get it for $4,000. First thing I did, I was off, I offered the seller $4,050 for the card, $50 more than this idiot told me he could get it for. God knows how much torture he had inflicted upon the seller on eBay just to get the price down to 4000 and still not even buy it. Five minutes later, the seller writes back to me, accepted for forty fifty. I bought the card. Second thing I did, I told the guy that had been annoying me that had been trying to buy my card, thanks but no thanks. His offer of 5100 with the 3% fee was rejected. Now, I assume that he immediately tried to buy the other card on eBay for $4,000 and alas, he found that it had just been bought. The funniest part is that it was bought by me. So now I've got three of them. I don't only need one of them. 
I don't care. It was worth the abuse. Moral of the story, I'm really, really immature. Other moral of the story, don't be an asshole. If you want it, you buy it. Stop being an asshole. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week. You can find me on beyondthelegallimit.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever podcasts can be found. Thank you for the emails. Thank you.